no one today tells a story like Marvel, the comic book company. Uh, Since 1939, Marvel Comics has published around 40,000 unique issues with over 8,000 different characters. Uh, Since 1977, there have been 79 films released about Marvel characters telling Marvel stories. 43 of those, this one I was shocked by, 43 of those have been released in the last 10 years, including at least four that will come out this year. And I will see all of them. But as you, as you think about Marvel Comics and, and now the cinematic universe, the movies, it kind of makes you ask, what's so appealing to us about these stories? There's a number of reasons. The dazzling artistry, if you're a comic book person. If you've seen the, the movies, the special effects are, are just insane, right? And who doesn't love a good superhero story? It, it, it tells us, you know, there may be something bigger than you out there, more powerful than you, that can rescue you from evil and from your problems. But I'd submit to you that there's actually a, a way of telling a story that Marvel has really honed in on that digs a little deeper than those things. Marvel is, they're masters at telling origin stories. So they don't just tell you uh, who a hero is and what he or she can do, but they tell you how that hero came to be. There's a clinical psychologist named Dr. Robin Rosenberg, and, and she wrote a book called Superhero Origins, What Makes Superheroes Tick and Why We Care, because we do care, right? And she defines an origin story as a story, quote, that explains who someone is, what's made the person that way, what the person cares about, and why. And so, for example, we don't just learn about a teenager who gets a radioactive spider bite and now he can climb on walls, right? We also learn about Peter Parker's uh, parents who mysteriously disappeared when he was younger. We, we learn about the fact that his uncle, who in a sense was a father to him, was ruthlessly murdered. And how that shapes Peter Parker into Spider-Man. Right? I know that's really nerdy for some of you, just bear with me for, for a minute. But as you follow these Marvel stories, you'll also notice something. In each of these character stories, there's there's always a time, a a time of crisis that forces them to go look back at their origin story, where they came from, what shaped them, and say, how does that make me who I am today? And that's something that we can all relate to. A couple of pastors were reflecting on this, Thomas Terry and Ryan Lister, and and they write, knowing where we come from helps make sense of the life-giving questions about who we are and where we're going. In other words, looking back helps us know why we're here now and helps us move forward. And that's really a helpful way of describing what we're doing this morning. We're looking at the, the origin story. We're going back to the beginning in God's Word and we're asking questions. And we're not asking questions merely as intellectual exercise, but we're, we're asking to discover why we're here. What is our purpose? And the Apostles' Creed tells us that we have answers to these questions. Last week, we looked at who God is. He's a triune, self-existent, eternal God. He's a, a loving Father. And today, we're looking at the phrase in the Creed, we believe in God, the creator of heaven and earth. God is the creator of heaven and earth. And for this, where better to turn than the first pages of Scripture, Genesis chapter 1. And as we walk through this passage, though there's certainly so much here, we won't have time to dig into all of it today, what we'll see as we ask questions of this is really four major things that God shows us here. We'll see first the power of God in creation. And that answers the question, how did God create? 
Secondly, we'll see the person of God in creation. That tells us what is he like? What's his character? Third, we'll see the purpose of God in creation. Why did he create? What are we here for? And then lastly, we'll turn around and see the people of God in creation. Just asking, how do we, as God's people, respond to our creator God? And so we're seeing that God's creation of heaven and earth shows us his power, shows us his person, and his purposes in such a way, just to give you a hint of where we're going to end up here, in such a way that the only right response to creator God is the praise of his glorious name. That's the end. And so let's jump in here. Number one, first, the power of God in creation. How did God create? Look at verses one and two. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water. So verse one introduces the main character to us, right? In the beginning, God. Stop. Before there was creation, there was God. How did he get there? He didn't get there. God has no origin story because he has no origin. He's the eternal, uncreated, self-existent, one true God. And he's the main character of this story. And if that makes your head hurt, good. It's supposed to. Right? And so we're introduced to the character, but we're also given a setting. God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form or void. So God was eternally there But he creates the heavens and the earth. And this phrase, the heavens and the earth, in the Bible as well as in the Apostles' Creed, it's it's simply a way to say God created everything. He created it all. And and it gives us this phrase that, that shows us that it was without form or void. And this means, we don't fully understand what this means, but it hints at the idea that there was this chaotic, uninhabitable nothingness as God created the heavens and the earth. And it's important to note here, just before we even move on, um, that God's not working with other materials to create. Okay? Now, the, the metaphor for God as an artist, as, as the grand artist, is a wonderful metaphor for creation. But just like any metaphor when we're talking about God, it breaks down, doesn't it? What, what artist do you know just pulls the canvas out of thin air? Like, boom, there it is. Or, or, or creates paint from nothing. Yet... That's who God is. It doesn't say in the beginning, God gathered resources and materials necessary to create the heavens and the earth. It says God simply created. He brought everything from nothing. And this is a demonstration of unimaginable power. This is what theologians, they use a phrase, Latin phrase, God created ex nihilo, meaning he created from nothing. Now you and I, we can imagine the power it takes to create things and put things together. I'm reminded of this every time I buy something from Ikea. I'm not, I don't know why that's funny, but um, I'm not a handy person. Some of you are. Um, I, I buy something from Ikea. I open it up and it takes a lot of mental energy, physical energy. And listen, this is something that is plainly laid out for me by my Swedish friends. Like it's all there. Thank you, yes, I know, it it shouldn't be that hard, but we can all think of examples of of things like that. But when we look at creation, God is not tired here. He's not not, uh, trying to catch a breath. He effortlessly creates from nothing. Now try to imagine the power that that takes, right? It's unimaginable. 
Revelation 4.11 describes it this way. It says, God, by your will, they existed and created. God willed it into existence. When was the last time you and I willed anything into existence? It can't happen. So the first words of Scripture are telling us what kind of book this is. The main character is God, the one true God, who is a God of unimaginable power. Therefore, he's worthy of worship and awe. We get that in the very first pages of this book. And now notice, not only does God create out of nothing, notice how he does it. He does it simply by speaking. Verse 3, And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. He, he simply uses the word of his power. God said, that phrase appears ten times in this chapter, to emphasize the creative power of God's word. Now we don't have time to look at the intricacies of each of the six days of creation, but just think about this for a minute. Let's just highlight them really quickly. Day one, he speaks light and darkness and day and night into existence, verses three through five. Day two, he speaks the sea and sky into existence. Verses 6 through 8. Day 3, he speaks the fertile land of the earth into existence. Verses 9 through 13. And then the rest of the days, 4 through 6, go back and show how God fills those places. Day 4, the light of the day and the light of night. That's the sun and the moon. Corresponds with day 1. Day 5, the fish and the birds. Verses 20 through 23, that corresponds with day 2. He's bringing life into those places. Day six, land animals and man and woman, 24 through 27, corresponding with filling the land with life on day three. So not only does he create with his word, he also has the power to give authority and command. In verse 22 and verse 28, he tells both animals and mankind to be fruitful and multiply. He's got the authority to tell his creation what to do. He has the authority to give dominion to mankind, to rule over his creation as his representative. Verse 26, all of these are testimonies to the power of God in creation. And as you consider this, it's no wonder as you read the Old Testament that the original audience of this, the Israelites, they were overwhelmed with fear and awe whenever they stood in the presence of God. It wasn't this sort of, you know, shrug your shoulders, oh, here's God. It was this is the un imaginably holy and righteous and powerful God in our midst. That's the God of creation. He's a God of power. Now, this power in creation is meant to humble us. We see this elsewhere in the Bible where God goes back to his creation and reminds people of who he is to humble them. Maybe you're familiar with the story of Job. God does this to Job in Job chapter 38. Job is is someone who endures great suffering, Not for anything he did wrong, just because he loses his uh, family, he loses his home, his livelihood, his health. His wife despises him, his friends are giving him terrible advice, and he is understandably weary, and he understandably goes to God, and he asks why. And God, eventually, after letting Job speak his heart, God eventually responds to him in Job 38. And listen, we're not going to read the whole chapter. Listen to what God says to Job to remind him of who he is. Verse 4, Job 38. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Verse 8. Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? Verse 12. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place? Do you you make every day come forward without fail? Verse 22, have you entered the storehouses of snow in the heavenly places? 
Have you seen the storehouses of hail? And then my favorite, verse 35, verse 35. Can you send forth lightnings that they may go and say to you, here we are. Job, can you tell lightning bolts where to go? Because I can. And as Job hears God reminding him of his power in creation, his response in chapter 40, he says, how can I reply? I will cover my mouth. Now, this isn't God being unkind to Job. It's not God being braggadocious. Instead, he's being a loving father to Job. He's saying, let me just remind you, Dad, you know what this is like? Let me just remind you who's in charge here. I'm the God of creation, and I love you, and I care for you. God's power in creation is meant to humble us. It's a needed and ongoing reminder, oh yeah, he's God, and I'm not. But that same power that humbles us is also meant to bring us comfort. The original audience of Genesis was the Israelites. And as they would be reading this and hearing this, they were surrounded by pagan nations. And they were fearful of the false gods of those nations that would supposedly give nations like Babylon military power. In fact, there's a hint at this in verse 16. Look at verse 16 in your Bibles. Moses, inspired by the Holy Spirit, he doesn't say God created the sun and the moon. He doesn't use the Hebrew word for that. Instead, he says God created two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. Why? Well, because the Hebrew words for sun and moon were actually the names of false pagan gods in Babylon. So God is saying, listen, don't fear the false sun and moon gods of your enemies. I created the sun and the moon. And I created it on day four. Before they even existed. They can't speak much less harm you. I, on the other hand, spoke the universe into existence. See, the creation account was meant to bring comfort to God's people. Oh yeah, he's our God. Now listen, we, don't, uh, we, we likely in this room don't fear pagan idols, but you do wrestle with fear. There are things that overwhelm you. Maybe you're fearful of the, f- the future. Maybe you don't know what finances are going to look like in the next coming month. Or you're worried about the political climate in our nation. Or what will happen to your children or this relationship or friendship or whatever is going on. And and to your fears, God says, listen, I was there before they even existed. I spoke the earth into creation. I'm the God of unimaginable power. And guess what? Child, I'm your God. Do you, do you really have any reason to fear? So we're both humbled and comforted by God's creative power. So that's the power of God in creation. Number two, what about the person of God? What is he like? Creation shows us that uh, he's a, a good God. While there are a lot of characteristics that we can pull out of this, and, and some uh, Pastor Clint hit on last week, the prominent one we, we see here in Genesis 1 is the goodness of God. Now, there are, there are plenty of examples throughout history that you could point to of power in the wrong hands, right? We just talked about God's power. Just having unimaginable power doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to use it for moral good, but that's not the God of Genesis 1. It's not the God of the Bible, Genesis 1 tells us not only is he a God of unimaginable power, but he is also good. God is like Aslan, if you're familiar with Chronicles of Narnia, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Listen to this interaction between Susan and Mr. Beaver as she hears about Aslan, 
who's this sort of Christ-like figure in the story. Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel, feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good and he's the king, I tell you. What is C.S. Lewis saying there? He's saying God is a God of unimaginable power. But it's not power wielded for evil or to harm. He's also good. And he's king. He's ruler. That's the God of creation. He's not safe, but he is good. And in Genesis 1, as he's speaking all these things into creation, what do we hear God say? And God saw the light. Help me out here. God saw the light, and the light was what? Good. The land and the seas, and God saw that it was plant life and vegetation. God saw that it was night and day. God saw that it was birds of the air and fish of the sea. God saw that it was living creatures on the land, and God saw that it was good. And then, there's one more piece. The pinnacle of God's creation was humankind, was Adam, then Eve. Created in the image of God, or the Imago Dei, a reflection of who he is. And Genesis 1.31 tells us God takes a step back. He looks at all of it, including his creation, man. And he says, not, not it's good, but it's very good. See, God's creation is full of his goodness because at God's core is total and perfect goodness. How could he create anything else, Right? It goes even deeper than this. So not only does God create good things out of his goodness, but as we look at the intricacies and beauty of creation, we, we see his goodness around us. A recent New York Times cover story asked this question, what is beauty for? How ex the extravagant splendor of the animal kingdom is prompting scientists to rethink evolution. That's an interesting title, isn't it? In the cover story, Ferris Jaber writes about how evolutionary scientists are having a hard time explaining the beauty of creation. Evolutionary process is supposed to be useful for survival. But as they're looking around and seeing the beauty of creation, they're seeing beautiful things that don't seem useful at all. And they, they give the example of the male flame bowerbird. Has anyone, does anyone know what that is? I would just be really impressed if you did. I didn't either. The male flame bowerbird is this beautiful bird with bright orange and yellow colors. And listen to what Jaber writes in this article. The most successful creatures should be the ones best adapted to their particular environments. So, what's the evolutionary justification for the bowerbird's ostentatious or beautiful display? Not only do the bowerbird's colorful feathers and elaborate constructions lack obvious out value outside courtship, I love that line, but they also hinder his survival and general well-being, draining precious calories and making him much more noticeable to predators. You see the predicament here? If there is no God, if there's no grand artist and creation is just mere random processes of evolution and matter doing what it does at certain temperatures, then beauty is meaningless. If follow that logic, that means you and I are also meaningless, which, listen, we know that can't be true. That's why they're wrestling with this question on the cover of the New York Times. Because some brilliant people are studying things like beauty and doing their best to try and explain what does this have to do with anything, but they, they can't do it. 
And so, what is the way they answer this question? What's the justification of the beauty of a bird or the beauty of anything for that matter? And here's the, uh, it's really a heartbreaking answer that the article comes up with. Sometimes, quote, sometimes beauty is the glorious but meaningless flowering of arbitrary preference. Really? Beauty is meaningless and arbitrary? I think they know that's not true. But you see that this worldview that there is no creator, can't answer questions about the meaning of beauty and goodness. Creation is just an accident. Beauty is meaningless. You and I are, are meaningless. But we know there's a better answer. Genesis 1 tells us the reason things are beautiful is because God is beautiful. The reason things are good is because God is good. And Al Mohler is very helpful here. Listen to what he says in response to this. It's beautiful because it is good and it is true. It's beautiful ultimately because the infinitely beautiful one created every single creature, every single atom and molecule of creation for his glory. He made it beautiful. He invested his creation with beauty as a reflection of his own beauty. And I love this line. The beauty of the world is derivative of the beauty of the self-existent creator God. That's why the bowerbird is beautiful. And think about this in your own experience. God could created us could have created us in such a way that our hunger was satisfied without, without taste. But instead he gave us taste buds. So not only do we eat or drink to survive, we can savor the goodness of flavor. I had a burger this week at Boston Burger Company. Have you ever been there? Oh man, it's a worship experience, right? <laughs> not only does God create astonishingly beautiful color schemes in sunsets, but what does he give us? Eyes to take it in. He gives us this goofy looking thing on the middle of our face so we can smell the aroma of a flower. Spring is coming even though it may not feel like it. And when it does, right, when the snow melts, we'll hear songbirds singing in the morning. I remember as a teenager for the very first time standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon, walking up thinking, what's the big deal? It's just a hole in the ground. And looking in and literally having my breath taken away. And if someone were to stand next to me and say, look at this beautiful, meaningless, arbitrary thing, I would say, are you out of your mind? No. Creation just screams at us that there's something behind all of this. And Genesis 1-1 tells us it's a good God, a good and powerful God. Well, what about God's good acts towards sinners like you and me? Whether you're a Christian or not, even when we scorn and reject him, his goodness towards us and endures. He provides daily bread. He gives the gift of friendship, family, breath in our lungs. And, and though I don't know everyone's story, though sorrows mark our lives, if we're to be honest, the joys far outweigh the sorrows. And all of these things, which we tend to take for granted daily, are testimonies to the goodness of God in creation. It's what leads the psalmist in Psalm 139, 14 to say, I praise you. Why? For I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. So ask yourself, how often do you reflect on the goodness of God in creation and his good works for you? If you're like me, you're distracted easily. We live in a, a distracted age. As Pastor Clint exhorted us last week, don't just skim the surface of the doctrine of creation. Dig deep and see who God is. Watch, watch a sunset and be moved to worship at the God who put it there. 
Turn off the phone. Take in fresh air, the sun on your face, a, a piece of music, delicious meal, a conversation. And prayerfully reflect on those good gifts for what they are. They're gifts from God. They're blessings that he showered upon you. So when you do that, answer the call of creation. That's what Psalm 34 is telling us. Psalm 34, 8 says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Everything around us is pointing to the goodness of God. So taste it and see it. So we see not only the power of God, but we see the person of God, his goodness in creation. And now, that, that's a goodness he des- decided to share with us, to share with mankind. And that leads us to number three, the purpose of God. And this is where we get at the question, why did God create? Now, this is the most important question in an origin story, right? It's good and necessary for us to know the how and who behind creation. But the ultimate question that you and I really have, that anyone is really asking deep down if they're honest, is what am I here for? How should I live? And as we look at God's purpose in creation, we discover his purpose. We discover our purpose as well as his image bearers. And so I just want to give two reasons for the purpose of why God created. First is sort of secondary, and the second one is primary. First, God created to share his goodness and love. It was the overflow of his goodness to us. Now, this is most clearly seen in verse 26 in the creation of mankind. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So you, you and I were created in the image of God. That doesn't mean that we're, we're divine. Uh, we're not God 2.0, right? It means that we're created to reflect him, to reflect his divinity. So our sense of beauty and goodness is because he's beautiful and good. Our love and affection for others is because he is a God of love. Our desire to create is because he is the creator God and we're made in his image. And the word us here in verse 26 is a hint at the triunity of God. And if you didn't hear last week's sermon from Pastor Clint, please do so. It's a wonderful explanation of the doctrine of the Trinity. And we also uh, will send out, I think we'll send out this week, a helpful eight-minute video that summarizes that doctrine. But in short, our God is one in three, Father, Son, and Spirit. And so God, us, let us make man in his own image. God enjoyed that fellowship within the Trinity in fullness of joy for eternity past. But he decided to share that goodness in creation. That's why we're here. Think of a couple who loves one another dearly. So they marry and their love for one another is, is growing. So much so that they decide, let's expand our family and share this love by having children. God has expanded his family, so to speak. He is, his goodness and love has overflowed to us in creation. He didn't create because he was lonely, as some have said, or because he was bored. That's how we function when we long for friendships. Or, or when we're, we're bored, we seek out an activity. But that would mean God is deficient in some way. God's not deficient. Jonathan Edwards, a pastor in the 1700s from Massachusetts, he refutes this idea with this helpful illustration. Listen to this. He says, It's no argument of the emptiness or deficiency of a fountain that it's inclined to overflow. I love that. What is he saying? Listen, God is a fountain. And what do fountains do? They overflow. And what is creation but an overflow of God's goodness and love towards us? We see a hint at this on day seven. Notice we didn't mention day seven. We didn't read the beginning of chapter two. But in chapter two, verse three, it says, On the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, 
and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God never tires or no grows weary. He created with perfect ease. So why would he rest? Well, there's a number of reasons, but one of the prominent ones is because the purpose of creation was to be a sanctuary where God's people enjoyed his goodness and presence with him. He was modeling for his people before sin even entered the world that there would be a time when you would rest from work and simply enjoy the, his presence. His desire is to share his love and goodness with us. That's why he created. But the second reason, and this is the ultimate reason, the ultimate purpose of creation is to glorify his name. It's the glory of God. The Bible is crystal clear and full of explanations of the glory of God as the purpose of creation, including the purpose of you and I. Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Psalm 148 is an entire psalm telling us that the primary task of the sun, the moon, the stars, the seas, creatures, fire, hail, rain, kings, you and I, is to praise His name. Again, you and I were created in the image of God. That means we're, we were created to expand His glory over creation. That's why He tells Adam and Eve, Be fruitful and multiply. Isaiah 43, 6 and 7. This is a good memory verse for you. If you want to know what's my purpose in life, I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. The Westminster Catechism from a Confession of of Faith in the 1600s asked this. Question one, what is the chief end of man? What is the purpose of all of us? The answer, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's why we're here. This is the kind of relationship Adam and Eve enjoyed with God in the garden. They fulfilled their purpose in experiencing his goodness and glorifying his name. There was no sin. There was no sorrow. There was no relational conflict with God or with one another or with creation. There was only fullness of joy. But such glory lasts two pages in Scripture. That's it. It doesn't last long. And we can't really take an honest look at creation without also considering the fall. See, in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve are tempted to disbelieve the power and person of God. Satan tells a lie that you and I have been believing ever since. You don't need God. You can actually have his power. He's not good. He's actually keeping you from goodness. You're not really satisfied, but if you disobey God and eat this fruit which he told you not to eat, then you'll be satisfied. Then you'll find your true purpose. They disobey. They believe the lie, and their joy-filled relationship was severed. Sin enters the world. The goodness of creation, including you and I, was damaged to the core by sin. And Paul puts it this way in Romans 1.25. And in doing so, he describes every single one of us. He says they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And they worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is forever blessed. So it may seem like God's plan is completely thwarted. But none of this catches God off guard. He promises that his power and goodness are going to prevail. He's going to bring about one born of a woman, he promises in Genesis 3, who will recreate fallen man. 
He'll bring about a new creation, and he'll do so by doing what Adam and Eve failed to do. Jen Wilkin writes on the grace of God in this. She says, Though God had every right to bar his goodness behind the flaming sword of the cherubim at Eden's eastern gate, instead, he allowed his goodness to follow Adam and Eve all the days of their life, even after their expulsion. And so he does for every son of Adam and daughter of Eve to this day. See, if you follow the rest of the Bible, what you'll see is story after story of unfaithful people being pursued by a faithful God who is determined to restore sinners to their created purpose of glorifying Him. That's the story of the Bible. And this is why when we get to the New Testament and we look at the Gospel of John, we hear the echoes of Genesis 1-1 as Jesus comes onto the scene. Listen to John 1, 1-5. Tell me if this sounds familiar. In the beginning was the Word, Jesus, the message of God. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. God created the universe with his word and he recreates sinful man with the word made flesh, Jesus Christ. All of creation was made through him and all who believe will be remade through him. We've rejected God's good purpose for us and we've sought our identity and created things instead of our creator. How can we be restored? Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 5.17. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old, the broken, the sinful, the one damaged by the fall, the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Those two words, in Christ, are some of the sweetest words in all of the New Testament. To be in Christ means to be united to him by faith. On the cross, Christ took our sins on his shoulders, though he was innocent, though he was fully obedient to God. He died the death you and I deserved to die. He was laid in the grave and rose from the dead victorious over sin and death. So that anyone who believes in him is recreated, reborn. The old you is gone and the new has come. You're restored to your purpose of living for the glory of God and enjoying him forever. That's the message of the gospel, and it's for all who would repent and believe. And just as as you think, okay, that really can't get any better, it does. Because Peter promises us in 2 Peter 3.13 that something better is actually coming. There's also going to be a new creation that was better than the first the new heavens and the new earth. But according to his promise, we're waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Listen, friends, the only miracle greater than God's power to speak the universe into existence is God's power to speak life into the hearts of sinners like you and me through faith in Jesus Christ. The dead can be made alive Those who have experienced the curse of the fall can be recreated in him to enjoy him forever and to glorify him. What good news it is for us. And so let's consider now lastly, the people of God. 
We've seen the power of God, the person of God, and the purpose of God. Now, how do we respond as God's people? And I briefly just want to give you three things. There's so much we could say here about what this means for us. Let me just give you three things. First, we should respond with a life of repentance. Just like the Israelites, we're surrounded by false belief systems, by false religions that tempt us to believe lies about God and where we came from. And we need to repent, which means to turn We need to repent of ways we've exchanged the worship of creator God for created things. Ask yourself this question, in what way have I ascribed power, ultimate power and goodness to created things instead of the creator God? In what ways have I sought to find ultimate purpose in things other than God in the pursuit of his glory? And Lord, lead us to repentance is not just a one-time thing. But for those who follow Jesus, it's daily. Lord, lead us to continual repentance. Live a life of repentance. Second, creation calls us to live a life devoted to the glory of God. This means that for the Christian, nothing is meaningless or arbitrary. Everything has a purpose, and that purpose is God's glory. You may may say, well, I'm not really a creative type. But listen, every one of us creates. You create relationships with your words. Whatever you do for a living involves creation of content or experience or, or products. So whether you're changing diapers all the time or teaching a class or swinging a hammer, all of those things are opportunities to live, act, and create for the glory of God. And in that glory, you'll find the fullness of your joy. And whatever responsibility you have, ask yourself, am I living and acting in a way that seeks to bring ultimate glory to God the uncreated one, or to something else. Creation calls us to live a life devoted to the glory of God. And then the last response for us, and this is the simple, simplest one, is that we live a life of worship and awe. Everything is, is summed up here. The simple and primary application, as we read in here, Genesis 1, is for us to worship him. The power and person and purpose of God in creation beckons us to exalt him above all things. So as we close, I want to just read this to you. And as, as you're seeing the words on the screen, just silently pray this to yourself. And if that's not your heart, ask that God would give you that heart. Psalm 148, verses 1 through 6. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights. Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his hosts. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. Praise him, you highest heavens and you waters above the earth. Let them praise the name of the Lord. Why? For he commanded and they were created. And he established them forever and ever. He gave a decree and it shall not pass away. 